Thank you for stopping by the Cypress Church Podcast. We are a church community who seek to worship Jesus, love one another, and serve the world. We hope you'll come away from this podcast with your hearts refreshed from hearing the Word of God proclaimed. Ulrich Zwingli, one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, cried out, For God's sake, do something brave. As we've been studying through the book of Acts together, those words have been running through my mind and I would ask you as we continue through this study in the book of Acts together to allow those words to ring through your mind as well. Back in the old days, 15 years ago in 2005, I had a program on my computer called Disk Defragmenter. I was told to run this program periodically to take all of the fragmented files on my computer and defragment them, organize them, into a nice, neat little package which was supposed to make my computer run way more effective. If I did not run disk defragmenter, I was told, my, my computer would run slow and would be very prone to crash. You can see up on the screen there the little box that used to come up on my screen. I used to love watching it. On the left hand side there, there was all these little colored, fragmented, different pieces that were representing the fragmented files on my computer and they would all come from the top of the screen box and just kind of float down as the disk defragmenter was working. Just float down and then congregate in a nice, neat little cube at the bottom of the text box. And it made me so happy. I loved the idea of all these fragmented pieces coming together in a nice, neat little cube that would make my computer run oh so more efficiently. I loved it. I would actually sit there sometimes in the quiet moments as my disk defragmenter was working and just watch it. (laughs) Nice, neat little text box. Awesome. There is a ministry of the church that works like the disc defragmenter. It's an experience that Jesus calls us all to have. It actually helps us understand how we are supposed to live this spirit-filled life. Not only that, it makes sense for us of all the different things that we do as a church. It brings all the pieces together for us. What is this ministry that's supposed to be at the heart of the church? What is this experience that Jesus is calling us all to have that makes sense of the Christian life? It's the ministry of disciple making. It's the experience of being discipled and learning how to make disciples. It's what Acts chapter 6 is all about. 
So if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 6, it's on page 1163 of the Black Pew Bible in front of you, page 1163, Acts chapter 6. This is actually the shortest chapter in the book of Acts, and it has three aspects to it. First of all, we're going to see that it focuses our attention on disciple-making. Then it's going to show us the fruit of disciple-making. Then it's going to remind us of the cost of being a disciple, something that we've seen repeated over these last few chapters that we've been reading through, the cost of discipleship. And as we read through these verses and travel through this chapter this morning, I want you to ask yourself a few questions. Have I been discipled? Have I learned how to make disciples? And is the model of discipleship that I understand, is it the same model that Jesus displays for us in the Gospels and that the apostles example for us in the book of Acts? With that, I want you to take note of the very first aspect of Acts chapter 6, Luke, the writer of this book, focuses our attention on disciple-making. You'll see it in the first seven verses. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicana, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before the apostles, they set them before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith." Before we get into the meat of these verses, I just want you to take note of the first four words in this chapter, now in these days. That signals a significant break in the pattern, the connection of the the previous chapters. Ever since the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, there has been this continual, uninterrupted series of events that are all connected together. The Holy Spirit comes and then chapter, in chapter 2, chapter 3, it's connected. Chapter 4 is connected. Chapter 5 is connected. But here in chapter 6, verse 1, there is a break. It's as if the, the writer, Luke, is showing us what's happening on the front lines. The apostles are pre- proclaiming Jesus' kingdom gospel with boldness. They are performing all kinds of miraculous signs and wonders. And the Lord is adding believers to the church. Amazing. That's the frontline ministry. Here, there's a break. Here, there is a timeout. 
Here, time slows down a little bit and we're given this perspective on what is going on behind the scenes. As the Lord adds believers to the church, the church begins multiplying disciples. That is their focus. There's a very heavy emphasis in these verses on disciple making. The first trigger of this is the very use of the word disciple. Right there in verse one, it first appears. That's the first time the word disciple appears in the book of Acts. It's right here in chapter six, verse one. And three times in these seven verses, that word disciple is used. It's used in verse one, in verse two, and in verse seven. The word disciple is the Greek word mathetes, from which we get the idea of mathematics. The word disciple literally means learner. So before we get into it too much, I just want to lay out a definition of who a disciple is. And if we have an understanding of a disciple being a learner, we'll begin our definition this way. A disciple is a person who is learning to live a new life with Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, a new life of loving others like Jesus. As you process through that definition of a disciple, a learner, somebody who is learning to live a new life with Jesus by the power of the Spirit, a new life of loving others like Jesus, I don't want you to miss, I want you to zero in on the whole idea of learning to live a new life with Jesus, with him. That phrase, with him, is power. In Mark chapter three and verse 14, when Jesus chose the 12, his 12 disciples, in Mark chapter three and verse 14, the very first purpose that Jesus set these men aside for was first, before they did anything else, he appointed them, it says, to be with him. That is really important. Before Jesus calls us to go out and do anything, first, as a new believer, we need to learn to begin living our lives with him. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means we need to learn to trust him, to know him, to enjoy him, to abide in him, and to fall in love with him. Before anything else, if the Christian life is anything, it is nothing without Jesus. And so our whole understanding of disciple making is not about learning to do a bunch of stuff first of all. Before any of that, first, it is learning to live a new life with Jesus, with him. We just read two Sundays ago in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. The Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, two of the three that Jesus spent the most time with, they brought, got brought before the council, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious power men. There's like 70 of these men all around, and they start interviewing, in, interviewing interrogating Peter and John, and they go, their observation in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13 was, these are ordinary uneducated men. 
That's all they are. But where are they getting this power to proclaim the gospel so boldly? Where are they getting this authority to speak with? How are they doing all these miraculous signs and wonders? And the one thing that it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, taps back into Mark chapter 3 and verse, uh, Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, it taps back into Mark chapter 3 and verse 14. The religious leaders take note they had been with Jesus. Disciple making before it is anything is learning to live a new life with Jesus in the power of his spirit. That is the focal point of what is going on right here in these verses. So, as you think through that, I just want you to take note, okay, we've got this word disciple, it shows up three times. Then take note of how repeatedly the apostles focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. Yes, it's them studying the, the, the word themselves. Yes, it's them praying themselves. But the ministry of the word and prayer is more than that. It's them ministering the word and praying with and teaching others to pray as well. Two foundational marks of a discipleship relationship with Jesus. As we learn how to study the scriptures and learn how to pray to God, we are learning to hear the voice of Jesus. And we are learning how to be empowered to do what he says. Very first of all, the very first thing I need to know if I'm a believer in Jesus is I need to learn to live this new life with him. And at the foundation of that is the word and prayer, which is code for, Lord, help me to to hear your voice and to do what you say. If you don't learn anything else other than that, if you learn just to do that, you, you know everything that there is about the Christian life. All through the Gospels, all through Acts, all through the whole New Testament, the foundation of our relationship with God is learning to hear what he says and to do what he says in the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything else branches out from these things learning to be with him, learning to hear his voice, and learning to do what he says. How do you learn these things? Well, the disciples, the apostles here, taught the early disciples to do this by spending time in the word and in prayer with them. And there is this, also this emphasis in here of the word and prayer and being filled, knowing how to be filled with the spirit, what it looks like to live filled with the spirit, and how to be obedient to the faith. These are all concepts that are critical, that always come out when Jesus is discipling people in the Gospels. It's always the Word. There's always prayer. There's always this idea of we cannot cannot do this without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And there's this emphasis on the obedience of faith. Very, very strong discipleship aspects here. So we've got the language of discipleship, we've got the methods of discipleship, we've got all this stuff going on here, and it kind of sets us up. We see, we see that the, the, the apostles here, they're actually doing what Jesus said. His last command in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, this is really important. His last command, and it starts like this, and I'm, I want to underline the first part. He says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, all authority 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me, all authority. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age." Man, that is a powerful commission. The Great Commission, we call it. I want you to think of as we begin to learn to be a disciple and as we learn to make disciples, we begin to experience the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the presence of Jesus. It's all there in those verses. The disciple-making process, as I learn how to be a disciple and make disciples, that's where the power and the authority and the presence is of Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth to obey everything I've commanded and I will be with you always. Presence, power, authority. The commission, the great commission, is like this disc defragmenter that makes all these pieces come into a nice, neat little cube right there in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. It brings it all together. How do I follow Jesus? What does it mean to live this Christian life? How do I understand how to be filled with the Spirit? What does it mean to be obedient to the faith? What does all that mean? Learn to live with Jesus. Learn to hear his voice and what it means to be filled with the Spirit to do what he says. And the authority of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the presence of Jesus will all start coming together in your life and it will start transforming you. You will start changing. Things, old things will be passing away. Behold, new things will be coming. You will change. If there is any lack of power or transformation or change in our life, it's not because Jesus isn't powerful enough Maybe we're not learning to walk with him through this life. Maybe we haven't learned to trust him, to know him, to fall more in love with him, to enjoy him. It all begins right here with learning to live a new life with Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Getting into his word, learning to pray, being filled with the Spirit, learning the obedience of faith. How do we learn that? by being discipled and learning to make disciples. There's two models, so just take note of this. Jesus' last command was the church's first priority. The very first thing they did. The Lord added believers. What did the church do? They immediately started multiplying disciples. That was the focus. That was their prime focus. Before they did anything else, they sought to make disciples, multiply disciples. The Lord added, notice the mathematical language here. There's a lot of mathematical language in these first seven verses. We've got the word disciple, the word methetes, from which we get the word mathematics. And then you've got the Lord adding believers. You've got the disciples multiplying other disciples. You've got the 12, that's a number, 
They're appointing the seven. They are calling the full number of disciples. There's lots of mathematical language here. And the idea is the Lord is the one who adds believers and the church is to seek to multiply disciples. That's the focus. But there's been two models of discipleship that have, have emerged. I've, you'll see them up on the screen there. I've called the first one information accumulation. That's the first model. The second model is transformation activation. It all sounds very highfalutin, but what it basically means is, how do you change? How do you change? How do you learn to be a disciple and make disciples? In the information accumulation model of discipleship, you'll see three characteristics. It focuses on large class lectures. The forum, the, the, the idea is knowledge. The goal is know a lot of stuff. Know a lot of stuff about Jesus, know a lot of facts about the Bible, know a bunch of stuff. Transformation activation is different. There's three characteristics that we see in the life of Jesus. Jesus chose 12 disciples, but take note, he focused on three, Peter, James, and John. He spent more time with those three men than any other people on the planet. Some scholars uh, estimate they, these men spent 90% of Jesus' time on the earth in public ministry, the three and a half years, they were with him 90% of that time. They were around him a lot. They were with him. Peter, James, they saw the greatest highs, like the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus glowing in glory up on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. They also saw him in the depths of despair in the Garden of Gethsemane. Only those three saw certain things throughout Jesus' life. They saw the highs, the lows, they saw everything. 90% of his life. Groups of three and four, the focus of these groups is on Jesus, getting to know him, learning to trust him, learning to enjoy him, learning to live a new life with him. And the goal is obedience. What do I mean by that? That word means one thing. It means hearing Jesus' voice and doing what he says. So you've got these two divergent models, and I've got a picture up on the screen here for you, just as you process through those two models. As you think about Jesus' ministry, did he lecture his disciples? Did he gather in the field and just say, sit down at your desk, I've got a board here, I'm going to start laying it all out for you, I'm going to lecture you. Is that what he did? Why do we do that? Why do we gather in classrooms and start lecturing? There's one person who's talking and we lecture. Why do we do that if Jesus didn't do that? If that's not how he made disciples, why do we do it that way? If you look at the next slide, you'll see the learning pyramid. You'll see the, the amount of retention of information that we receive in different settings. Now, the information accumulation model of discipleship is up the very top. Large group lecture. You retain about 5% of what you hear. But if you think through the transformation activation model, which I believe is what Jesus styled his discipleship after, 
you'll see that Jesus actually takes his disciples through every one of those levels. Yeah, he's talking to them. They're studying the scriptures. They're hearing him. He's demonstrating for them. He's discussing it with them. They practice doing it. And then they start teaching others. Another way to think of it is the disciples look at Jesus. They learn from Jesus. They labor with Jesus. And then they begin leading for Jesus. Jesus is training these men how to make disciples. As they are learning to live with him, this new life, he is training them. And the retention rate on what Jesus is doing here, we see it coming to the forefront in the book of Acts. Did these guys, we didn't see it before Jesus' death and resurrection. But once the disciples experienced Jesus' death and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit filling them, all this stuff starts coming back. They are saying the same things Jesus said. They are using the same words that Jesus used. They are performing miraculous signs and wonders just like Jesus did. It's remarkable. They're quoting scripture. They're teaching people to pray. They're teaching people what it means to be filled with this just like Jesus. They've retained a lot because Jesus took them through a process and the transformational process began with them learning to be with him, learning to hear his voice and do what he says. And as they were doing that, all this stuff started coming back of all the things that they were learning from him, they had learned from him. I remember learning these things very early on in my Christian life. I, some of you know, I came to know Jesus at the age of 22, came out, I had never been to church before, didn't never studied the Bible before, didn't even know people did study the Bible, that's how clueless I was. At the age of 22, I walk into a church after several months of, of being in a Bible study, walked into church on Easter Sunday, the gospel made complete sense. I realized I desperately needed Jesus. I needed him to forgive me of my sins. I needed him to rescue me and put me on a new path. And I came to faith in Christ. I went back to Australia at that point, was part of a small church of 60 people and there was a little old lady named Grace. And she was filled with grace and she lived in a trailer park and every Sunday for a period of time, she would invite me over to her house and we would have lunch together and she would make lunch on Saturday and then we would sit down together and we would just, we would just talk over lunch. And she would always have her Bible there with me and we would study scripture together and we would pray together and she would ask me about my life and we would pray for one another's families and our community and our things that are going on in our church. And when we would study the scriptures together, she would say things like, well, what do you think this scripture means? And I would start by saying, well, I think it means, and she would say, I don't care what you think. I asked you, what does it mean? And I learned a lot from spending six months with Grace around her kitchen, kitchen table in her trailer in this small church of 60 people. Within a very short time after I spent that six months with her, I went to seminary. Transformation activation. Grace didn't let me get away with anything. She made sure I was pressing into Jesus that I was clearly directed in this new life with Jesus. Then I went to seminary. 
way different model. <laughs> 500 super busy students, no extra time, getting piled on all these folders. This is, in, I was telling you about how much I love the disk defragmentation coming into beautiful order. These are all of my seminary notes. There's a whole other couple of bookshelves as well. Every class that I took, I've got all the notes. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a horribly scary thing, but I bring them to you this morning because this was the focus. Learn all this information. Gather all this knowledge. No one was there to press into me and say, I don't care what you think. I want to know what it means. No one was there to do that. I was being lectured in classes of 50, 60, 70 men and women. The relational aspect of seminary was very mild because everyone was so busy learning, learning, learning a bunch of knowledge and information that we had no process time to process through it. So we were learning to gather knowledge without actually putting any of it into practice. That is a scary thing if this is the model for how we're training the next generation of pastors and leaders in the church, I would submit to you. I learned more about disciple making from six months with Grace around her kitchen trailer in her kitchen table in her trailer than I did in three and a half years. And I value my seminary education a lot. It cost me a lot. <laughs> but I value it a lot as well. But it set me on a path of not understanding disciple-making for many, many years. I just put into practice what I had been taught at seminary. It's all about knowledge and information accumulation. You don't have to actually do what Jesus says. You just have to know what he says. No. No, that's not what we see here. What we see here is people learning the word, learning to hear Jesus' voice, do what he says, be filled with the spirit and put it into practice. And what we see is power. And so what I want to move on from the first aspect, which is the focus on disciple making to the fruit of disciple making. And what I want you to take note of in those first seven verses before we move on to verse eight is you might think the first time you read through this chapter that the focus is all about the complaint of the Hellenists against the Hebrews. This chapter is not about the complaint of the Hellenists against the Hebrews. That's just the event that, that brings the point to the forefront. You see, we could start getting into, well, who are the Hellenists and who are the Hebrews and why was there this, how did the distribution work uh, and, and, and why were the widows getting um, overlooked and all of this stuff, you'd be completely missing the point. There is always going to be issues in the church. Problems are going to arise. As the church starts to grow, weaknesses are going to be exposed. The point is not the problem. The point is the solution. The apostles pull everyone together and say, appoint seven men to serve tables. This was not a glorious leadership position, but they found, without even trying very hard, seven men of good reputation, filled with the Spirit, who were wise, who had proved that they could live wisely. How did they, how did they know all these things about these men? Because they'd gone through a disciple-making process? 
They'd learned what it means to be filled with the Spirit and they were actually living the Spirit-filled life. They didn't just know a bunch of stuff. They are actually living it out. And so as the church, not the apostles, the apostle says, you guys choose. And the, and the congregation was stoked with this. And they didn't have any problem identifying seven men. No problem at all. Boom, 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 boom. And it starts with Stephen. You see, the point of this passage isn't the complaint. It's the solution. They had trained godly servant leaders at the ready. They were just there. That's a very rare thing in the church, to have godly servant leaders ready, willing. I mean, what are we getting appointed to? Serve tables? They were stoked. They couldn't wait. Why? Because they'd learned to not despise the, the day of small things, like Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10 says. They, they had learned that the little things are just as important as the big things. And if I'm faithful with a little, I'll be given more. So they started at the bottom level and they were rejoicing in it to serve tables because they'd been beautifully discipled. See, the fruit of disciple making here is the fact that they didn't have to look hard and labor over trying to raise up leaders. They already had leaders right there. Godly, servant, wise, spirit-filled leaders. They're just there. They had more than seven. They just had to choose seven. No problem. Boom, 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 boom. Too easy. Why? Because the whole church, as soon as the Lord added believers, the church was focused on multiplying disciples. Godly servant leaders who understood what it meant to be filled with the Spirit and to use their spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. That's the first fruit that we see right here is the appointment of these seven men. All right? It's a significant moment in the life of the new church. But we, we have this unique focus on Stephen. He's named first. So not only is he of good reputation and filled with the Spirit and wise, but we see there in verse 5, he's a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then look with me at verses 8 through 10. Here we get, not only get introduced to Stephen, but now we learn a lot more about Stephen. And full of grace, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen's full of the spirit, but we also learn he's full of grace and full of power, and he's doing great signs and wonders among the people, and he was speaking about Jesus with boldness. And here's what I want you to recognize. These are all the things that Jesus had done. These are all the things that the apostles were doing. And now Stephen's doing these things. Stephen is doing all the things the apostles were doing, but he wasn't an apostle. He was just like us. And sometimes when we read through Acts, well, people will say, well, we're not apostles, so we can't do these things. Number one, remember the apostles just two chapters before were ordinary, uneducated men, right? 
but they'd been with Jesus. And so we elevate them into this position of apostleship, very, very important position. But we also, we, all, all, we kind of make it so that they're like beyond us. There's some kind of supermen. They're apostles. Of course they're doing this crazy, amazing stuff. That's what they're supposed to do. But here, the significance of Stephen and why we're highlighting, Stephen's highlighted for us, is Stephen wasn't an apostle. Stephen's living out of the authority now, the power now, the presence now of the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, all authority, power, presence, it's all there. And it's just been transferred from Jesus to the apostles and through disciple making now to Stephen and these other people. And Stephen is prepared and equipped to serve tables. But here we see it's way more than serving tables. He's doing everything the apostles were doing as he was serving tables. Man, that's a significant example for you and me. And Stephen's a significant figure for you and me. And that's why we not only have him highlighted here in chapter 6, but he's also going to be the whole subject of chapter 7. The same authority that was given to the apostles, that was passed down to Stephen, is passed down to you and me. How do we receive that? Through disciple making, through learning to be a disciple and learning how to make disciples. Everything comes together through this foundational ministry of the church. So we see the fruit of disciple making in these verses, and then we see the cost of being a disciple. Look at verses 11 through 15. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I'm going to hit this really quickly. The first point I want to make about these verses is as soon as we're introduced to Stephen, as soon as he begins living this spirit-filled life, as soon as he's appointed into this position of leadership, which is a place of serving, resistance and opposition comes. It's the cost of being a disciple. Have you counted the cost? We're reminded of that. The second thing I want you to take note of this week, which will be important for next week in chapter 7, is there's three accusations leveled against Stephen. They all have to do with Moses and the temple. Take note of that. Next week it's going to really come to the forefront, but if you don't know the accusations, you'll miss the main point. The accusations they're leveling against him are about Moses and the temple in Jerusalem. The third thing I just want to quickly hit is this curious reference to Stephen's face shining like an angel. And there is a beautiful irony to this. In light of the accusations against Moses, against Stephen speaking against Moses, 
because there is another person in the scriptures in the Old Testament. Sorry, my allergy, I do not have the coronavirus, all right? I just have really bad allergies right now. Have you seen all that gold pollen that's floating around everywhere? It's all up in my sinuses right now. Um, There was another person in the scriptures whose face shone with the glory of God. It was Moses. When he spent time with God in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 34, verse 29, Moses came out of the tent of meeting with God. Notice he was with God, like we need to be with Jesus. And because Stephen had been with Jesus, his face was shining like an angel as well, just like Moses. And the irony is, here is this council of men who were accusing Stephen of blaspheming Moses. And at the same time, Stephen's face is shining just like Moses. Who was more like Moses in those moments? These people who were trying to enforce the law of Moses or this person who was actually experiencing the power and the presence of Jesus in his life and was actually, his face was shining like Moses. It should have been a really big, like, aha moment for the, for the council here. But their eyes were veiled. They had veils over their faces. As Stephen's face is shining like Moses, their faces were veiled to what God was actually seeking to do in their lives. Acts chapter 6 might be the shortest chapter in the book of Acts, but it's given us a lot to think about. Nothing less than the whole way that we do discipleship as a church, the models that we use. Have we based all of our understanding of discipleship on information accumulation or on transformation activation on the ways of Jesus or our culture? If disciple making truly, if you read through the, through the gospels, through the book of Acts, and you see, you see this disciple making process just take hold and it's very, very clear when you have eyes to see it. You need to ask yourself, have I actually been discipled myself or have I kind of just been part of this information accumulation arena? Like I was for three and a half years. That's how I was trained for ministry. Information accumulation. Now I see, no, sitting around a table with grace in a trailer, that's what taught me to live with Jesus. That's what taught me to learn to begin hearing his voice and doing what he said. Where have you been in your discipleship journey? Has it all all been about knowing a lot? I've seen people do studies for 10, 20, 30 years and not change a bit. And I've seen a young guy, a young dad in our congregation go through a year's worth of discipleship training and say, this is the most life-changing thing that's ever happened to me. I've seen Bob and Mickey Tachibana two and a half years ago, be discipled and learn how to make disciples. And the people that they have discipled and the people that those people have discipled, Bob and Mickey's influence over two and a half years has they've influenced over 50 people. As the Lord added to their number, 
Bob and Mickey are focused on multiplying disciples and he is blessing their ministry. And they're in their 80s. They didn't learn how to really make disciples in a simple, reproducible way until they were in their 80s. And now they're in their most productive years of their life. It's amazing to watch. If you're after transformation and change, focus on learning to be a disciple, learning to live your life with Jesus, learning to hear his voice, do what he says. It's not about information accumulation. It's about activating change, transformation in our life. But this is where we come back to Ulrich Zwingli's words. For God's sake, do something brave. As we're going through the book of Acts, there's all sorts of stuff. I don't know if you're picking up on it, but there's things in my life that I see that are out of alignment with what these early believers are doing. In Acts chapter one, so when the spirit moves, every chapter we're learning something more about the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter one, when the spirit moves, the church is emboldened to travail in prayer. Am I travailing in prayer? By the way, there was over 100 people here for the first night of prayer last Wednesday. Man, I hope you will come and be part of this Wednesday. Am I learning how to travail in prayer? Acts chapter one, when the spirit moves, God's people travail in prayer. Acts chapter two, when the spirit moves, the church proclaims Jesus' kingdom gospel with confidence. Am I proclaiming Jesus' kingdom gospel with confidence? In Acts chapter three, when the spirit moves, the church is empowered to see others with Jesus' loving compassion. Am I seeing people with Jesus' loving compassion? When the spirit moves, the church is strengthened to endure persecution. How am I doing when I face resistance? Am I steadfast or do I run? When the spirit moves, the church confronts and confesses sin. And in Acts chapter six, when the spirit moves, the church is focused on multiplying disciples. As we learn all these things, and we see things in our life and in the church that are out of alignment, what are we going to do about it? Are we just going to learn it and know it and then dismiss it and ignore it? Or are we, for God's sake, going to do something brave and courageously address it in our life and bring it into alignment? If we're not travailing in prayer, let's begin travailing in prayer. If we're not proclaiming Jesus' kingdom gospel with confidence, let's figure out what the gospel, Jesus' kingdom gospel is and then pray for him to give us the confidence to proclaim it. If you haven't been discipled in a transformational, activational sense, be discipled, even if you're in your 80s or 90s. And the years to come could be the most productive years for Jesus' kingdom of your life. For God's sake, do something brave, Zwingli said. Those words are just ringing through my ears as, I'm going, as we're going through the book of Acts together. I hope they'll ring in your ears as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're the whole focus. 
You're worth all of the praise and all of the glory for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory. You're a king, you're a different kind of king. You're the kind of king who came and loved us enough to die on a cross for our sins and be resurrected from the dead. And for three and a half years, you exampled for us what it looks like to live a new life with you, how we can learn to hear your voice and do what you say. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear what you've said and eyes to see how you trained your disciples and eyes to see how your apostles trained their disciples and we're just like Stephen. And there's no reason why we can't be filled with the spirit like him and full of grace like him and full of power like him. Because you've said all authority has been given to you. And as we learn to be disciples and learn how to make disciples, we begin to experience the fullness of your power and presence in our lives. We don't want to be believers. We want to be disciples. People who have counted the cost and who are willing to do whatever it takes and not make any conditions or excuses for the rest of our life live a life that is worthy of the calling with which you've called us. So we want to honor you and praise you and ask you to go to work. And if we get into a situation where it's, well, I think, let's let Grace's words run through our mind. It doesn't matter what you think. What does God say? What does he say? And what do we need to do about it? And we can only do something about it if we're filled with your spirit. So would you fill us with your spirit and continue to do this reviving work in our hearts, in this church and in Monterey County and we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' powerful name we pray, amen.
go with this benediction, church. Knowing that there is power in the name of Jesus, keep your eyes open for Jesus all around you, the beauty all around you. Be compelled to share the gospel with those that you meet and go with the spirit that lives inside of you, that dwells inside of you until we meet again. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more information about our community, please visit cypresschurch.org. And as always, we would love to see you every Sunday at 10 a.m. for worship. Have a blessed week.